um, of the vineyard workers, this parable that Jesus told his disciples. Um, the workers who were hired early in the morning were upset because the workers who were hired later in the day were paid the exact same wages. Um, and immediately after that story, <clears throat> Jesus begins his journey towards Jerusalem um, to celebrate Passover. And Passover is this festival that the Jewish people celebrated um, that reminded them of their liberation out of slavery in Egypt. Um, the, it was this huge celebration. There's so many rich traditions. It's still celebrated today. Um, and Jesus was journeying to Jerusalem for this festival. Um, and Jesus knew this was the last trip he would ever make to Jerusalem. He directly tells his disciples exactly what's going to happen, that he will be delivered over to the priests, that they will condemn him to death, he will be crucified and buried, but on the third day he will be raised to life. So talk about some like major spoiler alerts. He's just laying it all out there for him. Um, he lays down all parables, allegories, symbolism aside, which is so funny because he like loves to tell these like nitty-gritty stories all the time. He lays all of that aside, and he pulls his closest 12 friends aside and tells them exactly what's going to happen, that he's going to Jerusalem to die. So that's where we're kind of picking up in our story today. And uh, Matthew gives us these two stories side by side. Each of them are about two men that request something of Jesus. Um, the first two men actually send their mom to request something of Jesus, which sounds like a little helicoptery to me. You know, I don't, I'm not sure how I feel about that, but I think there's a lot of important things happening here. So we're going to just dive in in Matthew 20, verse 20. So if you have your Bible or your phone with you, that's where we're going where we're gonna to read. <clears throat> so Matthew 20, verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down, asking a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant the what, that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. So Jesus bluntly announces his death and in walks the mother of, um, we, we hear the sons of Zebedee, which that we learn from earlier passages. This is James and John, two of his closest friends. I mean, this is like terrible timing. 
He just told them like this really heavy thing. And then in walks their mother asking Jesus to grant them these positions of power. And what she's really asking is for protection, privilege, power for her sons and her family. Now, even though Jesus has spent the last three years with his disciples and all of Israel telling them exactly what his kingdom would be like, they still believed or really hoped that Jesus was coming to sit on a literal throne in Jerusalem. They were hoping that Jesus, the promised Messiah, came to turn over the oppressive Roman Empire and that he would take over Israel again and whether it was through a rebellion or other means of force, that he would reestablish the security and prosperity of Israel. Um, The fact that the mom of these two disciples, who would have been someone who followed their journey very closely, again, she's a little helicoptery, the fact that she asked this question shows that they still were not quite getting Jesus's message of what it meant to be in his kingdom. Jesus responds by turning directly towards James and John, not towards their mom, and tells them that they don't know what they're asking. Can they really drink the cup he's about to drink? And without missing a beat, of course, they respond they can, which mega eye roll. Like, come on, guys. Like, clearly you are not getting this by now. When Jesus says that they will drink this cup, he knows eventually James and John will understand the fullness of what it means to be in his kingdom. They will eventually die for it. These places of honor they're asking for are not his to grant. They're places that God has already prepared a place for. Now, this sets off the other ten disciples, and I just kind of imagine this young group of men who are bickering over who's most powerful, who deserves this post, angry that James and John would try to usurp all of them for a place of power, And Jesus calls them together and corrects them. He calls them out. He reminds them that the rulers of the nations around them, they're the ones who are holding power and lording it over them and lording it over their communities. They're the ones who are actively fighting against them and oppressing them. And he's talking about the Roman Empire again. They were the main power at play. History tells us they were not kind rulers. Um, They were probably the most oppressive rulers in the ancient Near East. And Jesus says, this is not so for you. This is not how it's going to be. This is not what this looks like to be in my kingdom. He tells them, he did not come to rule on a throne. He, he like just tells him, right, straight up. He did not come to rule on a throne to be waited on or served. He came to serve. He came to sacrifice. He came to die. And there's this continuous theme in the Old Testament about siblings rivaling over thrones of power, grasping for birthrights and blessings. And you can read these stories in Genesis of Cain and Abel, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau. This is not a new thing happening here of brothers trying to fight over who deserves a place of honor and power. We see this grasping for power over and over again. And I believe this is rooted in this belief that there is not enough, that God has not provided enough blessing for all of us. He has not provided enough healing or security. If he blesses someone else, that must mean he's not blessing us. If he has promises for someone else, that that promise excludes us and that God has overlooked me. 
But I think what those ideas focus on, those insecurities focus on is us and our own limited scope of God's love and promises. I don't think we can ever really grasp the depth of God's provision for us. Yet what he invites us into is not a kingdom of comfort or happiness or security the way that we look at it. I feel like these these ideas are so rooted in not really trusting that God is who he says he is and also misunderstanding who he is. He invites us into servanthood and not necessarily into what modern ideas of success look like. And the death of our rights and our self-serving to give others what he has so generously given us leads to life and life to the full. Now, most of you guys know, again, we're moving back to Illinois to be closer to family. Um, And this might seem like an obvious thing, like, oh, yeah, you're going to go be closer to your family. But for the few in this room that do know our story, know that this is like a way more complex move for us. Um, Without divulging into too many details. Early on in our marriage, Jordan and I actually did move back to Illinois. We had been living in Minnesota, and it was not for the same hopeful and happy reasons that we have now. Um, We stepped into an extremely messy family situation where we were offering temporary respite care for a niece and a nephew. Um, We were driving them to school an hour and a half every day, We were um, living paycheck to paycheck. We were having to be super mindful of schedules and guidelines to help keep them safe, all the while living in my parents' basement, no full-time jobs, (laughs) and again, like just a very unhappy situation. Two years later, we moved back to Minnesota, and in a way, it was trying to find our own version of respite, trying to heal trying to reestablish community, to reestablish careers, to build a family. But somehow in the last six years, as much as we've loved what we have here, we know that like our roots are not deep in Minnesota soil. We've kind of always felt that pull back to Illinois. And when we started feeling God inviting us back to this place that's very uncertain and felt very... We felt very uneasy about it. We also were reminded over the years how we've seen God offer so much transforming restoration to our family and to that situation. And something that felt so overwhelmingly impossible, we've seen only God do what only a God who loves and cares unconditionally can do. And now he's inviting our family to be a part of something, to Uh, grow in this new community of family and to be a part of his restorative work with them. So let me be clear. This is not like a higher calling story because, you know, TBD, we don't really know what's going to happen here, but we're going for it. But I wanted to share this because as much as we really don't want to face it, sometimes God calls us to really hard things. Sometimes he asks us to let go, to serve, to set aside our preferences or even our rights And when we say yes to him, we're not only saying yes to a very upside-down kingdom where the least is the greatest, but we are also saying no to a thousand other things. And it's hard to face the message of the gospel that sometimes when it can be so full of grace and hope and love, but also sacrifice. 
So why say yes? If it's so hard, if this invitation to live like Jesus requires us to die to so many things, why say yes to it? Well, earlier in this passage, or earlier I said that in this passage, there's two stories. Um, and the second one is about two other men requesting something of Jesus. And there are two blind men that call out to Jesus in this crowd. And he asks them, what do you want from me? Like, it's not obvious. Like, what do you think they want? <laughs> but really, they could have asked for anything. They could have asked for money. They could have asked for power, like James and John. They could have asked for the destruction of all those enemies that I'm sure they had who taunted them and who defiled their names and the names of their families. But they respond simply, Lord, we want our sight. And Jesus immediately responds with compassion on them, like without hesitation. Could these men be the type of people that God has prepared a place for next to him? The people who would have been left out of their communities, you know, maybe their fellow Israelites um, thought that these men were somehow deserving of their disposition. At the time, it was really common, a common belief that if you had a physical disability or infirmity, that there, that was a punishment for some sin, whether it was a family sin down the line or your sin. And Jesus just instantly flips that theology on its head. He doesn't address the why or the how. He just makes a way for them to see again. In Jesus' kingdom, he takes all our ideas of leadership and security and safety, and he flips them upside down. And he says, in his kingdom, the least is the greatest. The seats of honor are reserved for those who are humble, the weak, the servant, the slave, the poor, the meek. Just like in our story last week about the vineyard workers, anyone who says yes to him can work alongside him in his kingdom. Even the straggler, the struggling, the sightless, he invites us into a new way of seeing the world when we say yes to him. He rules in a kingdom where everyone has a seat at his table. And for those who are willing to seek him, no matter what, has happened in their past, no matter what they bring to the table. As long as we're willing to serve him, to give of ourselves the way he's so generously given to us. And he tells us that when we are willing to let go of ourselves and embrace him, we will find life. So why say yes to him when it's so hard? When there's so much death and sorrow and sacrifice? Because we won't truly know living until we do. And when you taste life with him, I promise you, you will never be satisfied with anything else. And I feel like when we understand that Jesus' kingdom is this upside-down reality, it shifts the way that we see the world. 